Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, ULEZ expansion. London is about to have the world's largest pollution charging area as the capital's outer suburbs are added to the inner city zone. Drivers of vehicles that don't meet emission standards will be charged £12.50 a day, with motorists facing the threat of a £180 fine if they don't comply. ULEZ expansion was widely regarded as a key factor in the Conservatives holding on to Boris Johnson's old Uxbridge seat in a recent by-election. And unlike in other English cities, the government is refusing to fund a scrappage scheme for non-compliant cars, leading to claims by London Mayor Sadiq Khan that they are, quote, weaponising air pollution. We're going to hear from mum of two, Parisa Wright, who lives in Bromley. She's the founder of the charity Greener and Cleaner, and Ollie Lord, head of strategy at the Clean Cities Campaign UK. Before that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which combines the best of our online offerings with content you can't read anywhere else. We are the news outlet that exposed the Dan Wooden story when others chose to look the other way. That was a three-year investigation. It all costs money, so do support us if you can. Find out how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then, Parisa. Welcome, Ollie. And Parisa, before we talk about the charity that you've got, Cleaner and Green, I just want to talk about your experiences as a mum, because you live in Bromley, which is one of the areas that's going to be affected by the expansion, and you've got two young kids. Just tell me how ULES might benefit you and uh, how it might hinder you as well. Well, I mean, at the moment, I have a five-year-old and eight-year-old, and when I walk them to school, which obviously we're, we're all trying to do, right, as parents, we're trying to do the right thing for air quality for our kids' schools and for the children there. When we walk them to school, we walk past traffic outside that school and I walk past cars with black and grey smoke coming out of them so I guess my hope is that what Yulees means for my children is fewer cars with black and grey smoke being chugged out at the level of their mouths and their heads existing on the walk to school existing when we go to the park existing when we go to the shops and also you know at the moment we have air purifiers in our bedrooms because that's how bad things are in the little pocket that we live in. And while our borough overall has good stats for air quality, though maybe not for the elderly and the death rate with them, but overall, there are definitely pockets of really, really bad air quality. So my children will massively benefit and all the children that they're friends with and all the kids that I see around Bromley who are going to school in these pockets of bad air quality, who are living in these main roads and these junctions with bad traffic, they will benefit hugely. As you'll know, there are people, very often low earners, who on their daily travel go in and out of the ULES zone, as it were, and those people will have to pay the £12.50 a day. People who might be window cleaners, delivery drivers, people who are not particularly well off. If they were well off, they'd probably be driving cars that were more modern and didn't emit pollution. What do you say to those people who will be significantly hindered by the expansion of ULES? I would say two things. First of all, people, and not you, because Adrian, I believe that you actually do genuinely care, 
But often people who have never in their lives or in their political careers or in their general careers cared about people who were poorer, who were working class or who were on the poverty line are suddenly using those people as a reason why ULEs is a bad thing. But actually, if you look at, for example, Lewisham Borough, over 53% of that uh, adult population doesn't even own a car. And yet they still have to endure that air quality. They still have to endure their children, their vulnerable, their pregnant women, their elderly being hospitalised every week. And we had the first official death certificate from the South Circular there. And similarly, people say we're worried about the poorest. The poorest can't own a car. The poorest are the people who live in the most polluted areas, who are suffering the worst from toxic air. And yet they don't even own a car. What they need, what we all need, quite frankly is better scrappage schemes for the people who do have vans and cars, because this isn't a political thing, this is a human rights thing. Shouldn't it be about Labour and Conservative trying to make themselves each other look bad, make themselves look good, trying to divide the public? It should be about protecting our lungs from toxic air. And so what I say is the people who are not the poorest, because they don't have a car, but the poorest, they need better public transport, they need safe roads for walking and cycling, and that will massively help them and help us all. And it will help everybody else who maybe doesn't need to drive for those very, very short journeys. And I'm sure that Ollie will say more on that. And a huge percentage of our journeys are not going to work. They're tiny five minute, 10 minute walk journeys that we've all just got used to. So those people who are healthy enough and are able to walk and cycle can do it safely because I'd love to do that with my kids, cycle with them. Certain crossings are even dangerous to walk with them. And I know that a lot of people find that more anxious than I do. And then for the people who do need their vehicle and are struggling, what's the answer? The answer is a decent scrappage scheme. The answer is instead of the government going, yeah, 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 get on with it. It's like, actually, Mayor of London, we all care about lungs. Let's do it together. Let's fund it properly. If there's a problem with someone outside the borough coming in to work at a hospital or being a carer, let's make sure they've got some support as well. If there's a problem that the scrappage scheme isn't realistic, let's address that. Let's not make it into a Labour Conservative thing. Let's address the fact it's a human rights thing. Yeah, Sadiq Khan has said that the government is weaponising air pollution. The government, in response have said that the transport and air quality are devolved to London, which is why, unlike other English cities, they've left the scrappage scheme for London and TfL to manage. They say that they've provided transport for London with £6 billion since 2020 to keep public transport moving and almost £102 million for projects specifically targeted to help tackle air pollution. Ollie, welcome to the conversation. Uh, Part of what you're concerned with is i think helping to design cities or reimagine cities so that people don't need to drive as much how do we do that we're actually a european campaign so i've got peers in italy spain poland belgium and we're all striving to campaign particularly in cities and urban areas for better and cleaner and greener ways and actually more often than not more convenient and cheaper ways to travel around the city when it's not by polluting vehicles and especially focus on cars and vans. And, and I'm also quite exasperated by the conversation you just had with Parisa then, because it's tragic, isn't it, that we're having to sit here and discuss how window cleaners get around or people caring for their community, needing to use a car, up against parents also. I've spoke with a parent recently and she spent 10 consecutive nights in the hospital with her kid because of asthma. And we shouldn't be in that situation where people are being pitted against each other because 
basically I haven't met a single person uh, who wants to drive a dirty vehicle, pollute their own community, but quite often it is actually a necessity at the minute, and especially in the UK. And how we go about fixing this is much better investment in public transport. So over the past decade or so, we've seen train fares in the UK increase by about 35%. Bus fares go up 60 to 70%. In fact, a thousand bus services cut across the country. And that is not taking things in the right direction. And at the same time, we've seen reports come out from Committee on Climate Change talking about how transport emissions are stagnating when it comes to dealing with the climate crisis as well. Because if we do get this right, if we do clean up the air in our cities, we're we're also going to make inroads on the climate crisis as well. And Parisa hit it as well when it's about giving people alternatives, right? And we've been putting research out where we've been looking at how different cities across Europe are dealing with this. And actually, we've found UK cities are performing poorly in some circumstances. Part of that is around the affordability of public transport. Manchester, Birmingham, London, bottom of the barrel when it comes to the cost of public transport compared to household income. And then also we looked recently at car sharing schemes, electric car sharing, e-bikes and scooters, even electric buses where we did mildly better, actually. And I think that's a great opportunity for the UK, which I can get into in detail. But we are failing a bit when it comes to those shared services. So as a campaigner, with everything happening with the ultra low emission zone at the minute, I'd love to be able to actually engage with people and kind of say, look, just think twice maybe about needing to own your own car because you've got a car club at the end of your street. And we know more often than not, cars are parked 95% of the time. And if we shared the cars more, we could do more with the public space. And actually, we could all use cleaner cars as well. So I think there's a lot more that could be done to get people out of their cars. And we'll continue to campaign on that. But, you know, with the ultra low emission zone coming in, I hope that's going to focus minds as well. The number of deaths in Europe that you attribute to dirty air is 300,000 people a year. Break that down to the UK, if you can, and break that down to London. How many people are killed by air pollution in those areas? In the UK, we're looking at 36 to 40,000 premature deaths are attributed to air pollution. And in London, that is estimated to be around 4,000. When we talk about these deaths, Think about an iceberg it's the top of the iceberg well like underneath are all these illnesses that people are getting as a result of air pollution i kind of look after the healthy air coalition in london and that's part of a national coalition and that includes charities like alzheimer's research uk age uk asthma and lung uk british heart foundation cancer research uk dementia uk because these are all conditions that are attributable to air pollution and breathing in filthy air so for example one in ten cases of lung cancer in the uk are attributed to uh, air pollution asthma is so chronic and attributed to air pollution and these are preventable illnesses so we're actually talking about if we clean up our air Children won't grow up with stunted lungs, they won't develop asthma, they therefore won't have these lifelong illnesses that debilitate their future, and actually widens health inequities as well. And then the elderly are not susceptible to diseases that will shorten their lives. And what that means for us as society, it means freeing up beds in the NHS and social care system, which we all know is, quite frankly, a real shambles at the moment. And also the money, the billions of pounds that the government has forecast to be spending on diseases and illnesses attributed to air pollution. I think it was in as early as 2016, the Royal College of Physicians was saying that on average, the cost to the NHS and business because of air pollution, because of all these things, right, asthma, strokes, heart conditions, 
and people taking time off work, people being hospitalized was about 20 billion every year. And you might be a small business and you might have your worker going on sick leave with asthma, or you might have your colleague getting a stroke. One in five strokes and heart attacks globally is down to air pollution. The British Heart Foundation, they spent 3.8 million just researching the link between heart conditions and air pollution in the UK. It's a serious thing, as Ollie said. It's not just about deaths. And that's the sad thing, because deaths doesn't really factor in kids, because kids don't often die. They just really suffer. They get hospitalized. They end up with stunted lung growth, all sorts of behavioral issues. It does tend to be the older generations or the vulnerable that would die. I have one of our members of our charity who feels like she can't leave her flat because she's very, very health vulnerable and she's really worried about the air pollution in her area. I have another member whose mother has been hospitalised about six times since January, who lives in Bromley, and all due to asthma and air pollution. I have other people on my road who've got acute asthma and are worried about their kids every day. They're all on all sorts of steroids and stuff. And I think we know that when we had lockdown in London, the rates of hospitalizations of children due to asthma went up 64% after we stopped the lockdown and the cars went on the road again. And we were talking before we started recording, Parisa, about the coverage of this issue in many mainstream outlets so that the window cleaner who can't get to work or the hospital worker who will find themselves at a financial disadvantage are very often given airspace, and I think legitimately so. I don't think it's wrong to hear those arguments by any stretch of the imagination. But you felt, as a campaigner, as it were, on the other side, and I appreciate you don't really want it to be a polarised We're all on the same side. We all want human beings to thrive and be alive, and, you know, no one wants people to die, right? You know, but ultimately, it's just the way you do it and make sure that it's equitable for everyone. But no, but those kinds of examples that you were citing are less prone to be highlighted than those which give people a financial disadvantage. I think it's deeply depressing if you go on a mainstream TV news show and there's four stories about Yulis and three of them are about why it's bad and only one of them is about why maybe it's positive. And even that doesn't really go into the detail of this child died, this person was hospitalised seven times, this person is trapped in their own home, this person is feeding their child medicine three times a day, this person doesn't know how long their kid is going to survive living in their neighbourhood, but they can't afford to move. And a lot of people say, oh, they should move to the countryside. It's not as easy as like that. People can't just move, and especially with the cost of living and the difficulty of people buying or renting accommodation now, it's just not possible. Governments across Europe, including our own, have a responsibility to the people for their public health. Okay, whatever you want to call that. Basically, our lungs, right? We don't want to be breathing in toxic air. But more than that, I don't want vulnerable people, whether that's children, babies, elderly people, people with health vulnerabilities. I don't want them breathing in toxic air. I don't think anyone disagrees with that. But I think what people disagree with, as Ollie said, no one wants to drive a polluting car and pollute their community, but they just need the blooming financial help so that they can take that next step that they want to take. They want to support their community. They want to be able to take public transport if it works for them. They want to be able to have a cleaner car. We know we've got to remember, we're not talking about just going from really dirty old car to an EV. We're just talking about a cleaner car. You know, it's going in the right direction. They want to have options to car share. They want to have options to get access to electric bikes. But at the moment, this is sort of broken down on, oh, this is London, this is Manchester, this is Birmingham. Oh, this is this council, this is that council. This is their political beliefs. This is their political beliefs. This is how they're using this as a political football. It shouldn't be political. 
It shouldn't be broken down. It's the basic human right to not die, to not be drinking in disgusting, toxic air and to not watch your child struggling with that or your grandparents struggling with that or your parent or brother struggling with that. It's not reasonable. And really, the people who are struggling financially with the car upgrade situation, they should be helped. And for the people who can do alternatives, they should be helped because ultimately, we all need to work together to protect ourselves, both in terms of air quality and in terms of the climate crisis. And if you look at any other European country, earlier you mentioned some figures about what the government had given TfL, wow, million here, billion there, whatever it is. I bet you, if you look at what has been invested by governments across Europe in their public transport systems and how efficiently they run and how they don't necessarily break them down city by city and how they fund them properly, the costs of going on trains and things there and the efficiency of those trains and the cleanliness of those trains and buses and trams, shared car ownership schemes and electric bike schemes. There's so many more options in a lot of other European cities. And we also have one of the highest death rates of 10 to 24 year olds from asthma from a lot of the European cities as well. So we have a lot of catching up to do. And I think instead of going, oh, you're Labour, oh, you're Conservative, we just got to go, we're all human beings. We have to deal with this. Let's stop blaming each other and let's just work together let's not even break this down just say we're going to deal with it as a country and this is how we're going to do it Ollie, there is a kind of cultural resistance i suggest to the use of public transport i live in birmingham where in an attempt to encourage the use of buses of which bus use declined after the pandemic fares are capped at four pound fifty a day i'm not saying that everybody can afford that but most working people can afford £4.50 a day. But there is a cultural resistance to the use of buses. Train use has declined since the pandemic as well. And that's partly because people are working from home. But there's something here that goes beyond just money, isn't there? It's how we've built our towns and cities over the past decades, really. We've built our lives, we've built our dense urban areas around the car. And quite often it is actually more convenient and quicker to use the car. So it's no wonder that some people are prepared to look the other way and think that bus and trains aren't for them. But I do think it does come down to investment, though. I talked earlier about the chronic underinvestment in public services, the fact that we've lost around a thousand bus services in the past year. I mean, if you're losing the frequency, if you're not investing in cleaner electric buses that everyone can enjoy because they're quieter and they're not polluting their communities, you can even charge your phone on them and stuff like that. You know, if you take the Elizabeth line investment in London, Crossrail, if we had similar investment elsewhere in the country, I think I saw something recently. It's like one in six rail journeys across the UK are now on the Elizabeth line. It's, it's nuts. It really shows that if you actually invest in public transport, people really will start to use it. And I don't think we've been seeing that, sadly, from this government and actually successive governments. And I'd like to think that the next government, whoever that might be, would really run on a ticket to invest in public transport because it also means an investment in UK PLC as well. I mentioned electric buses. You know, they're built in Northern Ireland, they're built in Scotland, and they're built in Yorkshire. Could you imagine if we actually went off on one and actually improved bus services around the country? A little bit like what's happening in Manchester right now with Andy Burnham, and he's doing his best to get electric buses rolled out there. If we had electric buses in all our cities, really high frequency, I think that would be quite a game changer, actually. So I'm a bit more optimistic that people like the bus than more you're thinking, Adrian. But I don't live in Birmingham, which was built around the car many, many, many years ago and quite a change to come. 
Well, indeed, and I would recommend a recent podcast I made with Daniel Knowles, who is uh, an internationally based journalist now, but actually grew up in Birmingham, and he's written a fantastic book called Carmageddon about the way in which our cities have become built around the car, and none more so in the UK than Birmingham. That was a, a podcast recently here on the Byline Times. I'm interested as well on your thoughts, Ollie, and on how this is, and, and Paris has touched on this very much about how this is kind of a perfect culture war story. Yeah, and I think there's some irony to be had in this culture war debate about how people are inverted commas losing their freedom when it comes to restricting and limiting car use. Actually, I think on the flip side, people would gain a lot more freedom if we gave them a lot more options and alternatives to using the car and they're not trapped in what we would term in transport planning terms, sort of car dependency, where your whole life depends on being able to use a car or a van. You know, touching on vans as well, the small businesses, you talked about the window cleaner example, but, you know... Yeah, classic white van man. The classic yeah. white van man. There is an issue with vans in the UK now. There's a million more diesel vans on the road since the Dieselgate scandal. I think we're at about 4 million vans on the road. That's increased phenomenally over the past sort of five to 10 years, whether that's online shopping, also just the way business is happening. And we really need to think differently. I don't think we can sustain that growth. It's the only sector of transport and road vehicles that is increasing a lot and they're all diesel so really not good for our health we've looked at other countries and for example in france there's social leasing schemes that are now coming out for people on lower incomes to be able to get electric vehicles and i actually think the next government could play a blinder by trying to get more electric vans built in the uk and then also some social leasing schemes to help small businesses sidestep the next upgrade to another diesel van and actually jump into electric vans which will also save them money and improve the health of the communities they're working as well but that's a policy that i'd like to start championing and one final thought from you, Ollie. One of the reasons why London and other UK cities have moved to introduce ULEZ zones or similar congestion charging is because the UK has been taken to court for breaching a series of international obligations on clean air. So these were obligations freely entered into by UK governments to ensure we have cleaner air in this country. And governments, I'm not just pointing the finger at this particular government, governments have failed to meet those clean air standards. So these are not standards that are being imposed from outside. They're standards we have signed up to and which we have then been found to be in breach of, thanks to the work of organisations like Client Earth, who've then taken governments to court. That's right. The UK government has been taken to court three times, failing to act on air pollution and lost three times and actually we're still breaching legal limits for the toxic gas nitrogen dioxide in london and other cities around the uk including manchester and birmingham that were meant to be met back in 2010 like we're more than a decade overdue with that and it is a failure of action unfortunately another example would be the volkswagen scandal where the us government got billions of pounds from Volkswagen to help communities that were affected by the excess emissions from those vehicles. And the UK government hardly lifted a finger at the time. So I think you're absolutely right. These clean air zones aren't just popping up around the country because a local authority felt like doing it. In all honesty, I feel like now local authorities are sort of the last bastion in cleaning up the air because they are there at the local level. They know their local residents are getting affected and their health inequities are rising in their society. They're having to bring in these schemes. But at the same time in London, London boroughs had their core funding reduced by about 63% 
in the past 10 years. So they're also not able to give the sufficient financial support at the same time. So thank you for making that point, because there is a huge obligation on this government, successive governments before, but also the upcoming government to meet those legal limits that have been set in UK law. But it's not just about the law. It's about the World Health Organization guidelines, which are much stronger than even the limits set in UK law. And that's something that we should all be aspiring to working towards. I completely agree. Ultimately, it's down to the government to take responsibility for the British public, who they represent and who they're supposed to take care of, and to deal with this properly, protect our lungs and fund it so that the people who are struggling financially with this have options. We're all the same. We're all worried about air. Parisa, thank you. Uh, Parisa Wright, she's a mum of two. She's the founder of the charity Greener and Cleaner. Thanks also to Ollie Lord, Head of Strategy at the Clean Cities Campaign UK. My name is Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast brought to you by We Bring Audio and produced by me and Harvey White in Birmingham. Thanks very much indeed for listening. Don't forget the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Find out how to subscribe to our brilliant monthly newspaper over at bylinetimes.com. We'll see you again very soon, but for now, thanks very much indeed. See you soon. Cheers.